Okay, so that's in process, audio. It's my first time doing this, Nick, so no we're ready. Uh, okay, you ready, Lon? This is Lonnie Lowry. I am a nutrition professor, and I am a former competitive bodybuilder. Hi, everyone. I'm Robert Fortress Fortney, um, bodybuilding author, strength enthusiast, and uh, soon to be again competitive powerlifter. That's exciting. And with us today, we have Nick Bird. Um, I'm not sure how much of this topic was explained on on Facebook and on some of the uh, sort of informational content that was leading up to this, but. Uh, Nick is a, and Nick, you can correct me at any point here, but uh, a doctoral student at McMaster, is that right? That is correct, Lonnie. You're absolutely correct. And uh, Nick is a, a muscle metabolism scientist. And the reason that I really wanted to have him on the show uh, was to talk not just about uh, his background, because uh, Nick is uh, in, interested, of course, in, in weight training and whatnot as well, but also his his research. He's been involved in some very interesting research projects. And um, we wanted to kind of dive into that as far as the topic uh, of the show. But uh, Nick's background extends to Ball State as well. And I I thought what we could do first, Nick, if you could just basically tell us about your background, both in weight training, um, any competitive background you have, but also academic background. Sure, Lonnie. That's easy enough. Well, I actually – Started off uh, playing a lot of high school sports. I actually was recruited to play football at uh, at Ball State, and I actually, as you know, being uh, involved in sports, strength training goes hand in hand. So I've always had an interest and love love working out, love strength training. Got to Ball State actually, uh, kind of the passion for the the sporting act, uh, aspect kind of died a little bit and. Started to focus more on academics and um, the beauty of college is um, while you do have your studies and whatnot, you do have plenty of time to spend time in the weight room and actually throw around the weights a little bit. So I obviously enjoy doing that, and to this day I still uh, get up every morning and hit the weight room. But while I was at Ball State, um, as as you kind of mentioned, it's, it's a very rich history in exercise physiology, and I. Had a couple exercise physiology classes, uh, in particular one taught by uh, Dr. Scott Trappi, who's uh, one of the leaders in single muscle physiology. Um, was teaching an exercise physiology class, and I just was always on him, always always bugging him to try to get into the lab. Finally, he gave me the opportunity. Um, and then I obviously went into the lab, spent some time. It was, my timing was pretty perfect because shortly thereafter, his brother Todd Trappi, um, I actually moved moved to uh, to Ball State. Hired me as an undergrad research assistant, so I actually got paid to do something I loved, which was awesome as an undergrad. And he actually gave me a lot of responsibility. Put me on some pretty neat projects. Uh, in particular, it was a, as a bed rest study, um, which was in collaboration with some space agencies. So I spent some time doing that. Offered me a master slot. 
Uh, obviously, one of Todd's big interests is utilizing analgesic drugs and their effects on muscle protein synthesis following uh, resistance exercise. So, um, he has the data that I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with, that when you consume um, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, Advil, Tylenol following an exercise belt, you actually blunt the anabolic response or blunt muscle protein synthesis. So that was shown on a one-time basis. Um, so during that time, he ran, actually this data is not out, but he was running a training study with the elderly um, where these old individuals are coming to the lab, training their thighs um, three times a week. And there's three groups, one consuming a placebo group, the other two con consuming Advil or Tylenol. And obviously, if we showed it on a one-time basis, that we can blunt muscle protein synthesis, knowing that it takes a series of exercise bouts to obviously accumulate muscle proteins or training-induced muscle mass, um, that he was testing the hypothesis that these old individuals on these drugs would actually see an inferior, inferior increase in muscle protein synthesis. Um, I really can't give you what the results of that study was, because <laughs> <laughs> that's his baby now, and I'm obviously right. no longer in that lab. Um, but he gave me an extension off of that uh, kind of whole analgesic drug hypothesis as do some of my master's work. And fortunately, it was dealing with uh, stable isotopes and looking at muscle protein synthesis. So I I don't know if your listeners are familiar with what exactly a stable isotope is or what exactly we do here at McMaster. Right. I think it would be, Actually, I think I be a good idea to, to outline that a little bit. Cause, uh, right. Yeah. I, I, because especially when we get to the topic of the day, and, and Nick, you, you know where I'm going to go with this, with probably the of course. Uh, you yeah. know the controversy there. But it, it would help to explain to a lot of the the readers, because you know there's probably or listeners rather, there's probably a variety of uh, educational backgrounds. But it's important for them to understand what stable isotopes you know mean to the layperson and the kind of validity that it brings to this protein synthesis work. Of, of course, yeah, that's that's no problem at all. So. Why is that Todd and with Todd there at uh, Ball State and, and what I do here, obviously, Stuart Phillips, who I actually work for, is uh, one of the world leaders in muscle protein metabolism. But uh, what we essentially do is buy a uh, stable amino acid or a stable isotope uh, amino acid. And basically what this pharmaceutical company does is they label uh, or add an extra neutron to, to this particular amino acid. And by doing that, it makes it heavy. So it's it's, they just tag it, basically. So then what we do is bring subjects into the lab. We infuse this heavy amino acid, and over time it gets incorporated into your muscle. So usually how a typical trial runs is, first off, subjects come in, they lay down, we hook them up to the infusion pumps, and we begin to infuse this heavy amino acid. And then we take a muscle biopsy, usually, at, usually about two or three hours after we start the uh, infusion pump, just at rest, so these, these subjects have never exercised or um, that day, specifically that day, they didn't exercise. So what we like to do is characterize how your body's building proteins at rest. Um, and it's important that you, you do use, uh, make sure your subjects are either trained or untrained because uh, it's data out there, and there's others who've showed it also, that trained athletes tend to have a, uh, higher rates of just resting muscle protein synthesis. So a trained individual, they tend to turn over proteins 
a little a little quicker than just a sedentary individual. So then we take a muscle biopsy after two or three hours, and we do some voodoo in the lab, and essentially what we end up doing is seeing how much of that heavy amino acid has been incorporated into muscle over that two hours. So obviously the more amino acid that's been incorporated, the more heavy amino acid that's been incorporated, the more muscle protein synthesis is going on. And like I said, depending on your training background, it's going to probably depend how you're building these muscle proteins at rest. So so we have the, uh, the resting synthetic rate. So now we like to characterize how your body's building uh, muscle proteins in response to exercise. And our particular in- uh, interest is utilizing um, resistance exercise. So as we will probably get into later on today, we use different uh, feeding and exercise paradigms, and we, we kind of examine how these different feeding and exercise bouts are affecting muscle protein synthesis. And what's pretty pretty unique here at uh, McMaster is um, we actually have the technology to look at specific muscle protein subfractions. So obviously you probably need a little more clarification on what exactly that is. So some labs around the world, they just look at what is called mixed muscle protein synthesis. So what they do is they take that muscle biopsy, grind it up, and they just, independent of what what uh, proteins are in there, they've just looked at how all your muscle proteins are being um, synthesized, hence the reason mixed muscle protein synthesis. We can do that here, but we actually usually go one step further and we look at how particular uh, or specific subfractions are being synthesized following an exercise bout. Um, for instance, we can look at how the myofibrillar proteins are being synthesized. And as we all know, the myofibrillar proteins are the, the force-producing component within your within your muscle, basically. And it represents the majority of your muscle, roughly being about 60% of mixed muscle mixed muscle protein. So that can give you a clue that if you're synthesizing a lot of myofibrillar proteins, in the end, you're probably going to gain your muscles going to grow bigger if you if that particular exercise or feeding paradigm is highly anabolic towards the myofibrillar proteins. But then we can also look at mitochondrial proteins. So um, in my my uh, last last study I ran, we actually were going to look at how the mitochondrial proteins are responding to a particular exercise stimulus, but we do have the ability to look at mitochondrial proteins. We also have the ability to look at the, the collagen, um, muscle collagen proteins, which are simply the proteins uh, in the extracellular matrix or the proteins surrounding your uh, your muscle cell. And what these ultimately are important for is they actually transfer the, transfer the force produced within your muscle out to the tendon and bone for movement. So we can look at the collagen proteins, and then we also can look at how the sarcoplasmic proteins are um, being synthesized, and these is simply uh, the soup or uh, everything surrounding the uh, the muscle. So, and a lot of guys would think, and maybe I've even read on some bodybuilding websites that if you do a lot of repetitions, uh, you're going to turn over a lot of sarcoplasmic proteins per se, and kind of um, get that uh, transient hypertrophy or whatever you want to call it. So that's uh, that's another. Um, protein we can look at. So in the end, we can look at mixed muscle protein, um, the myofibrillar proteins, collagen proteins, um, sarcoplasmic proteins, or mitochondrial proteins. So we we can pretty much get a good idea what's going on in the muscle as far as muscle protein synthesis is concerned or what proteins are being synthesized following different exercise and feeding paradigms. 
Right. So that's essentially what we do here in a in a brief nutshell. Okay. Well, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe we, maybe of... we <laughs> let's clarify that all of those things, myofibrillar proteins or collagen or sarcoplasmic, all these things are essentially good uh, <laughs> to put a tag on it to uh, a bodybuilder or someone wanting to gain sure. muscle mass, right? But in a sense, you sort of, and I think most listeners know this, that the myofibrillar proteins are, are probably the primary target of interest. Is that correct? Yes. Those are the ones that probably the bodybuilders want to, uh, they like to target because those are the ones that are producing force, and those are the ones that make up the majority of your muscles. So probably in the end, if you're building a lot of myofibrillar proteins over time, your muscle is going to get bigger. Yes, that's absolutely correct, Monty. Okay. Now, one of the things that I think some people might be thinking, and I believe somebody mentioned this up in Barry uh, back at the conference, but um, can you explain why protein synthesis is such a big part of this? I mean, maybe there's a naysayer out there saying, well, you know, what about protein breakdown? What about, you know, total turnover? He's missing half the picture. So can you explain to them why synthesis is a big deal? Yeah, so... uh, as Lonnie kind of alluded to, so we'll, our primary focus is muscle protein synthesis, but obviously your muscle is constantly turning over, so there's also a muscle protein breakdown going on. Um, during a fasted state, meaning when you have not eaten any food, um, the, usually the amino acids, so you break down the muscle proteins, and those are what's given the substrate for synthesis. Um, so, but we tend to look at... Uh, but then I should mention that as soon as you you eat you eat food, you do affect muscle protein breakdown a little bit, but you see just a robust increase in muscle protein synthesis. So if you would track or look at uh, muscle protein synthesis or muscle protein breakdown following different exercise or feeding paradigms, muscle protein synthesis is the primary variable that's uh, that's affected. So it's the one that is predominantly driving net muscle protein balance. And it's important, that whole equation, so what net or muscle protein balance or net muscle protein balance simply is, is um, muscle protein synthesis minus muscle protein breakdown. So it's important to be in a positive protein balance, obviously, if you're interested in, in building muscle. Because if you're, if you're in the positive, then you're, you're building muscle, while if you're in the negative, you're, in, you're obviously losing muscle. So, as I just said, muscle protein synthesis is, is primary is the one that's primarily affected by different feeding and exercise paradigms. Thus, it's the one that's primarily affecting that whole equation. So, if we if we look at we look at muscle protein synthesis, um, we're getting a good idea if what's going on. Now, it is it is important to look at muscle protein breakdown, but it's not it doesn't change a whole lot. So, it doesn't really really wouldn't tell you too much and and it's very difficult actually in the laboratory to get muscle protein breakdown um so to be honest to us we're not really that interested in it because for one it's it's difficult there's a lot of assumptions that go into the equation to calculate it um and it's not the primary variable being affected in the, the net balance uh protein balance equation right now for strength coaches and people who are listening or power lifters or or bodybuilders um they might be saying, well, the proof's in the pudding, right? Protein synthesis, mm, yeah. if you measure that four hours after exercise or even 24 hours or whatever the, the protocol is, I mean, they might want to see a training study to to back that up, right? So that's also something that 
that you do or, or you plan, especially when you come up with something controversial. Is that correct? That is correct. So it, exactly. Like uh, proof is in the pudding, as Lonnie alluded to. Um, you obviously need – so what we look at is muscle protein synthesis following an acute bout of resistance exercise. So as I kind of alluded to earlier, we know that it takes a uh, series of exercise bouts to accumulate muscle proteins and thus muscle pro- – uh, obviously training-induced muscle mass. So what we see on a one-time basis, if you carry out this same particular exercise paradigm um, and it's highly anabolic, then that gives us a good idea that, that in fact, okay, if we run a training study, um, this should predict the long, long-term outcomes. And we have shown that. So, But to run training studies is very expensive. So we, we usually examine initially um, on an acute sense, okay, this particular exercise bout or this particular feeding paradigm was highly anabolic. Now we gotta now we gotta show it or now we gotta do the training study to confirm our acute findings. So yes, our acute response is predictive of long term games gains. However, we do run the training studies to confirm what we found acutely. And that's and that's actually we got a nice one going on now that I that I'm sure you're you're talking about. I presented some nice data in Barry, and that's probably the data you're alluding to that um, will probably be of some topic here coming up here shortly. Right, right. Now, you know what? Um, there's. I don't want to tangent too far because I, I want to ask you one more thing about yourself. But can you, uh, you know, in a nutshell, just kind of describe to everybody how stable isotopes offer more information than the old nitrogen balance technique? Because some people might be familiar with nitrogen balance, and maybe you can explain, you know, the, some of the differences there, how things have evolved, or something like that. Sure. So. So with uh, well, the nitrogen balance equations obviously uh, they have their their downfalls. But what's nice about um, or even there's other techniques to to look at muscle protein synthesis, um, AV balance and things. But what what we do is a direct measurement of muscle protein synthesis. And I, as I described, so we're infusing this heavy amino acid that gets taken up into the muscle. We take a muscle biopsy and we see how much of that heavy amino acid has been incorporated. So it, it's really, it's, it's pretty simple, basically. Right. I mean, there's no there's no little uh, getting around it. If that amino acid hasn't been incorpor- incorporated into the protein, then, we're, then it, it didn't. However, with some of these other methods, there are indirect measures of muscle protein synthesis. So what we do is a direct measure of muscle protein synthesis. Rather it be, you know, they, the old AV balance where they, they look at how amino acids are appearing or disappearing in the blood. Um, that's that's a classic way individuals do it. But what that is, it's not really um, you're getting a, a measure of leg, leg protein synthesis per se because obviously skin and other things are going to contribute to what you see in the blood. So what's nice with our um, direct measure of muscle protein synthesis um, it is just that. It's a direct measure of muscle protein synthesis. Right, yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay, well, before we go on to the topic, because, I mean, this is going to drift into uh, the topic anyway, but is there anything else that you want to add? I mean, um, do you have any competitive aspirations oh, or recreational side of things, I mean, or, or projects that you're doing or anything you'd like to bring up? Um, as far as uh, in, the, in the gym goes, um, basically what I uh, anymore, as I said, being an old athlete is something that's in your blood. Just something I like 
to train. Train early in the morning kind of kind of clears the head, gets you focused for the day, and it's really a time uh, time for me to to exercise those demons. It's funny. Um, I still train pretty hard, and some of the some of my buddies or some of the individuals in the lab they always ask me what I'm training for, and I always respond, uh, I don't know, but I'll be ready for it whenever it comes. You know what I mean? So it's so is it strength things. work? Are you doing strength work? Are you trying um, to build size yes, or both? I, or? I, no, I usually tend to, to hit hit the good stuff, meaning it's nothing fancy, the deadlifts, the squats, the bench press, that kind of stuff. And actually, my advisor Stuart Phillips, he's the same way. He's uh he works out every morning, and um, so actually, this whole lab we're all resistance trained individuals. So not only do we like to investigate it in the lab, but we actually do go and hit the gym pretty hard. And my love, my lab mates actually play some rugby and things, but I just utilize the gym as a as a place to free the mind, exercise exercises demons or just clear the mind for the day so it's not really not really preparing for anything just because i love it basically it's the only reason i train i think well, that's you know, a, it's, I it's think fun that's to hear you say that i'm there to hold the uh, exercising the demons thing i think we have to use that for another topic some other time yeah you know that's a good point <laughs> I, I remember back you know back in the in the early 90s it, you know when we were uh in Pete Lemon's lab, it's funny because I'm sort of jealous. You know, you and your mentors and your lab mates, you're all lifting. And I mean, I was like the sole exemplar. Maybe one or two other guys, you know, in Pete's lab, we're like these strength guys and an ocean of endurance guys. You know, in this exercise yep. physiology lab, and everybody's always busting my chops about, oh, Lonnie's got the VO2 max of a field mouse, and <laughs> you know, and just making fun of my aerobic ability and stuff, and. I don't know. It, it was just it, well, it's, it's funny it's, how how times have changed in that regard, you know. Strength Yes, yeah, so but but I uh, I can feel for Ilani because when I was at Ball State, they were, they were a huge aerobic uh aerobic laboratory in it. <laughs> and of course, uh Dave Costo, uh, just a legend in exercise physiology. He's a huge aerobic guy, and I don't know how many times he used to ask uh Dave Costo if he would go hit the squat rack with me and he would there just you look go. at me and shake look at me and shake his head. So uh <laughs> but no, here we certainly uh we certainly enjoy what we do and actually just uh I'd say a couple minutes ago me and uh Dan West, a, a lab mate of mine, we were upstairs having a pull up competition just because uh I don't know, I guess the testosterone got raging a little bit and we were <laughs> <laughs> trying to call each other out on how many pull ups we could do but Needless to say, I think I might have won that one. So, but he's well, not here good. to defend himself. So, <laughs> yeah, he can't, can't say too much himself. on that topic. All right, uh, Rob, can, can you play the bumper for the topic of the day, and and we'll kind of get into that. Here we go. topic is really specifically chosen, uh, as Nick's already alluded to a little, uh, to sort of tailored toward him. And that's about, you know, optimal intensity or even number of sets um, in the gym. And what's unique about uh, Nick and his lab, um, his advisor, uh, Stu Phillips, or some of the people that are, you know, in those same circles, Mark Tronopolsky or Rennie or all these very, very famous researchers is is they're 
they have the unique ability to directly, as Nick said, look at muscle protein synthesis and what works and what doesn't, very directly, not indirectly. And then they also back it up with training studies, which are difficult and, you know, working with free living people and all that kind of stuff. So my first question for you, Nick, is, I mean, surely you see that lower weight, high rep training for muscle mass is is controversial, right? What yeah, would you... What would you say to that if someone says, you know, I just can't believe you. I know you you work with some really impressive persons and you're a you're a big brain yourself, but I just can't get my head around this 30% of one rep max idea to get big. Sure. So I guess we have to uh yeah, and that's that's exactly right because you you go into the gym and uh, most most people is going to tell you, you know, heavier weights equal equal bigger muscle and and to be honest, I I like to train heavy. It's fun, man. I have a good time. But uh, where it does come important is if we're injured and as as we get older, um, sometimes those those big weights aren't so friendly to uh, to us. But but basically, what we need to do is go back to uh, some some classic physiology, actually, and that and that's related to the to the size principle. Um I'm sure most actually most strength trainers and uh or at least strength coaches they they're familiar with the uh the, the old size principle and the fact that within our muscle we have we have two types of muscle fibers. Um those being the type one muscle fibers and the uh the type twos. So the type two muscle fiber is ideally the one we are the ones we like to recruit. So they're highly responsive to resistance training. Um and most most bodybuilders are going to have a lot of, or at least, are going to be hypertrophy. Like the type two fibers are the ones that are going to respond to resistance exercise, whereas those the runners, like in our old laboratories, they are mostly concerned with the the type one fibers, which are highly fatigue resistant, um, have a have a great ability for oxidative capacity and, and things. But being being interested in strength and growing a bigger muscle, we want to recruit those type 2 fibers. And one of the easiest ways to do that is simply go into the gym and lift lift a heavier load because obviously what that does is you got to activate the muscle, the whole muscle, and you're able to overcome the load. And so how the size principle works is that we first recruit the type 1 fibers to maintain most muscle tension, but if the load's too great, or as the load gets heavier and heavier, we must activate more more muscle, basically. So we're able to tap into those highly hypertrophic type 2 fibers. And as, as I said, sure, one way to do that is going into the gym, picking up a weight that's roughly um, 80% of your 1RM or something you can lift 6, six to 10 times or 7 to 12, 8 to 12 times, whatever rep range you like, and essentially what you're going to do is recruit these type 2 fibers, and over time, these are the ones that like to respond to resistance exercise, and then you're going to get a bigger muscle. However, that's not the only way. Um, we can also go into the gym, pick up a weight that's roughly 30% of your 1RM, and at first you're probably going to be mainly recruiting these type 1s. But However, what happens is these are going to fatigue out, and then you slowly start recruiting more and more, and more muscle fiber, to maintain that muscle tension. So essentially over time, you're going to actually start recruiting these highly hypertrophic type 2 fibers, and that's regardless of exercise intensity, meaning if you take that weight 
and it burns, right? Once you start feeling that burning, but you just keep going, you're going to tap into these highly hypertrophic type 2 fibers. And once again, over time, your muscles are going to grow bigger. Now, it is important for a lot of athletes and such. They obviously all are also concerned with strength. Um, lifting the bigger weights are probably going to help with maximal strength to a greater extent, but just for a bigger muscle, um, you could probably lift with uh, 30% of your 1RM, and in the end, you're going to have the same amount of uh, training-induced muscle mass gains, independent of intensity, provided you're able to tap into those those hypertrophic uh, type 2 fibers. Right. Now, there's two questions that I have for you here. One, uh, Rob and I were talking about today, earlier, uh, and Rob, you brought up the first thing was, uh, didn't you, you said something about like individual differences and how some people gravitate and seem to get better results with heavy lifts versus Well, yeah, lighter, I mean, when you're right? looking at differences in, you know, even if you're looking at big names, guys from Arnold Schwarzenegger, then Doreen Yates, and just huge differences in, in their kind of their, how they, you know, um, approach their training and their rep ranges and their sets and all and their frequency and volume and all this type of thing. I mean, there, there's obviously a huge difference between um, individuals and how they respond. Um, of course, that brings up all the questions about the variables that are, you know, implicit in that, like, you know, the genetic predispositions and, and, and you know, chemical hormonal use and, and all these types of things. I mean, if you so, look at some, like I was mentioning to you earlier, Lonnie, like, you know, one of the, some of the old guys like Johnny Fuller and that I, I mentioned specifically, even guys like Serge Nubray and these type of people who were renowned for being in the gym several times a week, you know, three, four, five hours at a time, and they would do, you know, 100 sets of 100 reps and all these kind of crazy things. And, you know, they they, they certainly um, lent a lot of credibility to what, you know, Nick is saying, obviously. And even some of the more um, traditional rep, you know, bodybuilding kind of Western ways of kind of doing things like, you know, three sets of eight, three sets of ten, or these types of things. When you look really at a lot of these competitors and what they're doing, um, even though maybe not in, in an individual set achieving, you know, 20, 23 reps or whatever, they're pushing the pace to such a degree, whether it be, you know, every 45 seconds, every 90 seconds, that ultimately you might be actually looking at something where, where the react, you know, the reaction in the muscle is the same as what Nick is implying. And, again, I'm no scientist, so I'm not um, trying to talk beyond myself here, but obviously, I mean, even Bob Kennedy, my old boss at uh, Muscle Mega International, who's, you know, known and trained with, you know, the greatest bodybuilders since the golden age of bodybuilding, he used to always say that, um, you know, ultimately it, it requires reps. So, you know, I don't think there's any really disputing that, um, you know, at some stage of the game, there has to be a certain volume of reps and sets and that, that accumulates to, you know, create a large muscle. Yeah, I like how you're kind of phrasing that, that almost like there's a it's known that there's a, a certain volume requirement, you know, sets times reps kind of thing. And and it's a, kind of a slightly different way to look at it than just looking at 30% of one rep max or, or, or something like that. Um, right. But, you know, Nick was obviously right in pointing out that this eyes principle is basically a human truth in that, you know, later repetitions in a set eventually evoke those larger motor units, those bigger fibers, and it's it's like a, a back door, if you will, or a, a secondary approach to stimulating those instead of using 90% of your maximum or something. Well, I mean, even uh, looking for longevity of bodybuilding, I mean, obviously sometimes um, success in bodybuilding, if you have kind of, the, again, the structural and you know genetic potential for that, um, comes down to the ability to, just to kind of last, 
you know, as many years as is required to kind of get to that size. I mean, if you're looking at guys even more recent like Vince Taylor and stuff, I mean, these are guys that were very, very competitive into their 40s, you know, as bodybuilders. Um, and when you look at their training, it was actually quite light. But as we all know on the show and many of our listeners know, just because you can bench 400 pounds doesn't mean that you, if you're an advanced trainer, and you most likely are if you can bench 400 pounds, that you can't make a set of 8 or 10 with 135 feel heavy if you're, if you're training it properly and, you know, in a specific sense. Like um, Nick said, age or, like you're saying, career longevity. I wanted right. to ask Nick, and you too, Rob. Uh, Nick, do you see a, a role, though, for heavy work, like 90% of one rep max? I mean, I know you're talking about strength development. Like, if you were going to design a program yourself, would you do like a non-linear type of thing where you're you're taking a couple weeks heavy and then a couple weeks in this lighter rep range? I mean, since you've seen this data, has it affected you? Uh, well, bottom line, I guess the the true underlying basis of uh, muscle hypertrophy or whatever is consistency. So, right. Sometimes if you do lift this 30% fail or whatever you want to use not that fun it's very mentally fatiguing and it's very just very exhausting um because yeah to be honest i i'm not one who enjoys lifting lightweight for a lot of reps <laughs> however i do enjoy because <laughs> i'm still a young man i still uh, i enjoy lifting lifting a little heavier um no, to be honest the uh it's always in the back of my mind but i still i'm just like a, an old an old power lifter by heart so i I still love to go and hit my heavy deadlifts and things, but that's because I'm young. And as as we age and and things, it's it's more important to to put down that whole dogma that you must go heavy or heavier is the only way to get a bigger muscle. Um, because as as we age, 30% to failure. The kind of the kind of strength they're interested in is is for just activities of daily living, particularly if they can get out of a chair. Um, that makes them independent. If they're confined to a chair or something, then they're pretty sure. much going to have to be put in a home, right? So this this kind of lower weight training and is very important for that population, for a young athlete or, or somebody who's um, interested in building strength and for sports. Then obviously the heavier the heavier loads are, are better for them, but that's yeah that's that's the bottom line and I think right. another thing people commonly argue is you know what about power power is very important um if we and we know you know power equals force times velocity, especially for an older individual, it's tough for an older individual to lift this heavy weight very fast, so we would argue that this thirty percent fill for at least an older subject is very good for developing power because they're able to to move it safely at a very high speed um so it's basically what is your ultimate goal? Is your ultimate goal strength and hypertrophy? Um, then maybe a little heavier is better. But if but if somebody's just recovering from an in, uh, injury and and they're thinking, man, I'm I'm lifting, but I can't really go that heavy. Uh, I'm probably really not doing nothing. That's that's not true. You can still still build a big muscle at this light weight, um, and that's and that's what we're saying. Right. You know what? This is part of the reason I thought, gosh, I have got to to interview Nick directly and get, you know, some of this you know, inside kind of information because this really begs the question. I mean, if you take if you just for a moment you set aside obviously legitimate applications like 
older persons or even career longevity for athletes or whatever, we're actually talking about a scenario, and I'm not sure this even sounds ethical, but where you could do basically low-intensity lifting and get quite big. You could do low-intensity, like direct fat oxidation kinds of uh, aerobic activity. I don't even want to call it cardio. And you could get fairly lean doing that. So, I mean, in a strange way, you could become quite muscular. You could become very big and very lean by sort of training like a wimp, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So... (laughs) Well, this is relative speaking, of course. Well, sure. <laughs> um, but don't you think right, it's well, worth suggesting that just the whole concept of like you know maximal strength and so forth and, and the nervous system function in that? I mean, and and ultimately when you're when you're trying to build size, I mean, at, at some point you have to, of course, you know, um, reacclimate the muscle to something that it's not generally used to, um, and so you know there's, there's going to have to be a poundage increase at some point, obviously. Um, and probably quite constantly. So um, those lower kind of rep, higher weight schemes that seem to, again, make me talking as a former bodybuilder, now powerlifter, certainly, obviously, your body has to kind of, quote-unquote, get used to heavier weights, um, and I think that's probably a nervous system function, and among other things, again, not talking as a scientist. Um, but I think that's necessary, obviously, to kind of at least um, – semi-regularly, you know, to, to breach, you know, those plateaus with with a ner- new nervous system function at a heavier weight, and then you can kind of, again, which, again, all this kind of lends itself back to kind of periodization, a periodization type training and that kind of thing and kind of putting, you know, specific um, protocols in order several times a year, so you're kind of constantly moving towards that. Yeah. I don't know if any of that just made sense. but no. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. You know, one of the things I mean, Charles. Bear in mind, I'm talking here with two scientists, so I'm a little out of my depth. But. Well, Charles, you know, he'll say he'll 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 make comments like, you know, muscle muscle is the is the slave to the nervous system. You know, right. a lot of people are familiar with these cross innervation studies where if you take, you know, a larger, you know, uh, what we'll call type two, you know, nerve and and touch it to uh, muscle fiber that used to be part of a, a type 1 or slower twitch muscle unit, you can actually get it to, you know, to sort of change uh, on some level. And, uh, I mean, that's what we're talking We're talking about something different here with this lighter rep stuff. We're not trying to talk about um, you know, those kinds of things as much, except that, like Nick was saying, that you can lift quite explosively with the lighter weights. And it's just, I don't know, to me it seems very frustrating. I mean, we're literally talking about, if, just to, for the listeners, Imagine you squat 400 pounds. I mean, you're talking about putting less than 135 on the bar to squat. And, you know, I think that's sort of what what takes people aback a little bit about some of this, that, you know, you're going to get essentially, at least in, in theory at this point, or from the protein synthesis data, you're going to get bigger legs from putting 135 on the bar for umpteen reps, you know, instead of, uh, lifting heavy. I mean, like, like I mean, saying, barring the, any nervous system, muscle fiber type sorts of, you know, adaptations. But. And further to what you're saying, Lonnie, I mean, you and I have talked many, many times about how, um, certainly from a lower body standpoint, it seems to be that, you know, more reps and more sets usually does the trick for just, you know, I always deem things differently. Like there's, to me, there's muscle mass and there's muscle volume. And I mean, this is just, again, a fortress kind of stupid way of putting things. But, you know, you get that voluminous kind of, you know, muscular size versus kind of a thick, 
massive look to you. But, I mean, certainly I can say as a former bodybuilder, my legs had more volume to them, certainly, when I was going to the gym and doing, you know, crazy things like several sets of 20 with 315 or 10 of 10 or all these kind of crazy things and high, super high reps, 30 reps with 315. Um, you know, certainly I would say my mass has always been the same, but the, I mean, there's there's certainly a difference there in what I consider volume. Uh, I don't know. Well, you know, actually, that's. I want to ask Nick about the volume thing because uh, his advisor, Stu Phillips, and, and it might have been in Rennie's lab, I can't remember, but yep. weren't they teasing apart the whole three sets versus six sets for optimal protein synthesis? Yes, you're absolutely correct. And um, actually, it's, a, it's another small part. I'm directly involved with all that work. Um, yeah, it is. And I should I should point out that um, volume seems to be, if, if we do look at some of the scientific data, it seems to be that uh, the myofibrillar proteins or the, the force-producing component of your muscle, they seem to be... Pretty pretty sensitive to volume. Um, they seem to like to like volume, to be honest. Um, but regardless of that, so it was actually Mike Rennie that kind of he's he's really good. Uh, Mike Rennie's a researcher from the UK, and pretty much uh, he's a he's a forefather in uh, at least muscle protein syn- syn- uh, synthesis, utilizing stable isotope methodology and exercise physiology. But um, what he he actually does. He's very good about comparing old and young comparisons. So he ran a study. This is unpublished data, but he's just, he showed it at a conference, so I'm sure you won't mind me <laughs> telling anything about it. But he he ran a study where he had young young guys and old old guys come into the lab. They performed three sets or six sets of the resistance exercise bout. And what he's shown is that the actually these young guys they did not. Um, there's no difference. There's no difference in myofibrillar protein synthesis if you did three sets or if you did six sets. But he has some published data out showing that the old tend to be, they have an anabolic resistance to uh, resistance exercise. So they do not respond as well as the, the younger individuals. But what was unique with what he showed in, with his data is the fact that the old people could, could recover um, the anabolic response with more volume, so they actually seen greater increases of increases in myofibrillar protein synthesis with with six sets. So for a young guy, three sets is as good as six sets, but it appears oh. for an older individual, um, three sets or six sets is better than three sets. So, so when you say older, do you mean are these guys seventy or seventy-five yes, years exactly. old? Yes, Sorry, yeah, I, I, yeah, seventy. I, I think. Uh, like I said, I, this has been about uh, since the summertime since I oh, sure, actually <laughs> looked at this data. But uh, yeah, I believe it was 70 year olds, and that's what he traditionally uses based on some of his other work. So it's yeah, it's 65 wow. to 70 year olds. Yeah, that so, was. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I said that was some nice data. Yeah, that was good. Uh, but my question, actually, I wanted to ask you quickly. Then, what about yeah. guys in the middle like me? <laughs> <laughs> what would you would you just would you just theorize that? Then maybe slightly more volume might be necessary. I mean, if three vol- if three sets seems best for a young guy, and any more than that is almost wasting your time on some level when it comes to, you know, myofibrillar protein synthesis. And older guys get better, you know, protein synthesis out of six sets. Would you think middle-aged guys might do best? And I know that's total speculation, but might do best at four or five sets. I would argue that most most middle-aged guys they're 
they're not as old as they think. They're probably still more closer to the younger guys. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Something something crazy happens with your physiology. Not even uh, even at seventy, a seventy year old's not that bad. But it, it, if you look at some of the data as far as gene expression goes, it seems when you get greater than eighty, that's when our phys- physiology kind of starts changing dramatically, at least detectable in science. But I would say uh, a forty. 40 uh, or 50 year old, he's still fine with the old uh, three sets or, uh, you know, three sets being better than six. Sure, if he wants to do four four sets to, to do a little insurance, I guess that's fine. But I, I wouldn't <laughs> think he would need the uh, the more volume. All right, um, that's good to know. Yeah, mm-hmm, that's that right. Great. So, and we actually, the data I'm sure you're, you're thinking about that, we actually ran a study kind of in line with uh, Dr. Rennie's stuff where we had these some relatively trained individuals come into the lab, and they actually performed one set of resistance exercise or three sets. So you can see we're kind of building this whole uh, this whole dose response of how many sets you know do you actually need. So as I stated, we we had some some pretty. I mean, these guys are trained, not not probably to the status of uh, some of your listeners, but they were as trained as far as we're concerned. They were uh, doing resistance exercise. At least three to three to five times a week, and at least two bo- two lower body um, resistance exercise bouts, and you know how it goes. Like some of the college guys, they say they're training, but if you go to the gym, they're not really training. But regardless, um, they were familiar with resistance exercise, and from a scientific standpoint, they were resistance trained. Um, and what we're very good about doing here is actually doing extended tide points beyond the immediate acute response. So not only do we look at a response at four hours post-exercise, but we also look at it the very next day because we know following a acute bout of resistance exercise that muscle protein synthesis can be elevated for up to two days later. Um, so it's, it's good to characterize further time points beyond just immediately after that exercise bout. So as these guys came into the to the uh, lab, performed their bouts of exercise, and we did our voodoo, we actually found that um, it seemed like three sets was better than one set at not only four hours post-exercise, but also the very next day. So to some extent, one set is not as good as three sets. Um, three sets is as good as six sets. So it seems like uh, if you're going to do a, a bout, and it seems like three sets is would be sufficient because we were we were thinking that maybe one set might be able to maximize some of the responses, but it, it certainly did not. That's almost blasphemy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm almost glad. Yeah. I'm almost glad, Nick, because otherwise we're talking about you know not just lifting light, but almost spending no time at all in the gym for best gains. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> um, and we we're we're actually carrying as as we mentioned earlier. Obviously, we need to run the proof of principle training studies, and that's what we're doing now. So. Not only are we running the training study for the the light versus heavy heavy load training groups, but also doing this whole one set versus three sets. And if our predictive nature of our acute response holds up, then um, we should be able, which which we're pretty confident in our acute response. Um, we hope, well, we hypothesize that we should see similar things following uh, training. So that's, right. I really that's look forward to that data. Yeah, like you know, talk about proof of concept, like you're saying. You can use a a fairly large number of subjects, probably compared to the stable stable isotope work, right? Yes, exactly. And, yeah, and you're you absolutely just, correct. 
and you could cover the genetic variability and all that kind of stuff. And now, there's one thing that I need to ask you before, because we're, we're pressed for time here. Um, one last gold nugget that I'm going to ask of Nick Bird, and that is, you mentioned earlier about analgesic meds and protein synthesis. Now, sure. Yeah. And you know, as as somebody with you know a little bit of joint inflammation and whatnot, um, sometimes I think about this, which is, is does it actually make a difference? Like in a training study, like would aspirin or ibuprofen really inhibit well, protein synthesis at the point that your training might not have much of an effect? Okay. So there's. So I actually some of my master's work we did a nice acute study utilizing. Uh, um, same thing, I did this whole stable isotope stuff. I actually used Celebrex, um, which is a prescription strength pain medication, and 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 I found, this was in young guys, and I found if these young guys come into the lab, take these Celebrex, that in fact we did not blunt muscle protein synthesis. We hypothesized that we would because what Todd showed earlier, Todd Trappy showed earlier, that if you consume ibuprofen and acetaminophen, that you do blunt muscle protein synthesis following the acute bout of exercise. So then he ran the training study, and he reported this, actually. This was in um, older individuals. So as I, as I said earlier, the older individuals came into the, the lab and performed uh, exercise three times a week and then consumed their respective uh, pills, you know, that being a uh, sugar pill or ibuprofen and acetaminophen. And what he actually found, now me being out of the lab, I haven't seen a lot of the, the in-house data, but um, this was presented at a... A conference in, I believe it was maybe in San Francisco, I don't even know anymore where it was presented, but he showed that the older individuals consuming the pills actually grew bigger muscles. Not only did they, their muscle grow bigger, but they also got stronger than a placebo group. So there's so there's something, uh, we don't have to get into the physiology, and we have an idea of what's going on, or at least um, at last time I talked to Todd, but it appears that the chronic consumption of these pain medications um, actually, we're slightly anabolic. Which is, wow, that's that's <laughs> confounding. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying yeah, it's, uh, in it's the immediate amazing. aftermath of a bout of exercise, it's, it's not so good to use this stuff, but exactly. in the long term. It had yeah. the opposite effect of what, we, of what he hypothesized anyway. Right. He thought the people on the drugs was going to see blunted responses. They did not. They actually seen um, just the opposite. So I'm curious how he's going to see how he... Uh, because they've been obviously in the lab getting after the mechanism a little heavier. My master's work got after it slightly, but um, it's not like I'm advocating. The, obviously, there's some downfalls to chronic consumption of uh, these non-selective tox inhibitors. So don't your yeah, listeners shouldn't go out and start popping ibuprofen and acetaminophen right. in hopes of growing a bigger right. muscle. Right. But it does appear that uh, at least so these these older individuals, I believe it was uh, it was either eight or twelve weeks of training. Um, they consume these pills, and they, in fact, seen superior increases in, like I said, wow. muscle mass and strength. So, bottom line, I guess if you're taking them, don't be too worried about it turning off uh, or blunting some of your responses. Yeah, there's so many things that I want to ask you that would bore the heck out of listeners about, you know, selectivity of COX-1 and COX-2, or if there's some kind of, uh, maybe it's a half-life issue with, something like ibuprofen or aspirin, and, you know, since it's not in your system that long, there's some kind of um, compensatory bump up in some enzyme or, you know, anyway. Yeah, you're I'll, uh, I'll, you're hitting around the, the right stuff, sir, I'll, Lonnie, I'll like shut I up. said. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's exciting data, and actually I, my uh, my master's work is actually published, so we kind of tiptoe around some of those 
some of those exact uh, questions you were asking, uh, Lonnie. If you get on PubMed, you can you can pull that that paper up. I'll have to look for that. Okay. Well, um, that was great. Thank you very am... much for coming on, Nick. Oh, it was awesome. I love doing this stuff. Thanks Absolutely. for having me on. And I should mention geek out. Yeah, I, I should mention that I have a, a lab mate here with some data, even some some great data that I know you guys would be interested in, and that's that's dealing with exercise-induced anabolic hormones. So if you guys ever have interest in talking about that topic, the whole testosterone, growth hormone, that kind of stuff. And it's, it's actually funny you bring that up because earlier I was going to say that as far as, you know, the, you know what is generally known about, you know, um, growth hormone response versus testosterone response for, you know, higher reps, lower reps, heavier weight and stuff. So I, I think that would be a good idea to have, an, have another show at some point and talk about that. It oh, would yeah, be good. Would, yeah, you know, that's, uh, actually, that's some nice data. If we could, maybe we might even get you and him on. There's no reason why we couldn't do both. Um, oh, we'd love Because I know you've done some work. Haven't you done some work with growth hormone in um, collagen or some? Uh, oh yeah, we we commented. So uh, yeah, we've been we've been putting down. Uh, actually, uh, that would that's worth a whole another show, Lonnie. But yes, yeah, we've, that's what I'm saying. We've done yeah, a lot totally. with the old uh, exercise-induced hormonal hypothesis, and I know your listeners would love love to hear about it. Um, and yeah, when we would certainly be willing to come on and, and chat anytime, because as I said, this is actually there's not too many individuals. Well, there's not a whole lot of individuals out out there that hop on PubMed and actually uh, and actually read the science for themselves. So this is one way for a, a scientist to get it out to the masses and out to the people that actually kind of have a, a passion for it, as as do we. So we enjoy doing these kind of shows. Right. You know, I should be honest with you, and I don't know if if listeners know this. We haven't really gone on about it much, but we only have about 4,000 people listen to shows every month. So it's not like there's a gigantic number of people listening, but I I would still argue, and I agree totally, Nick, that's one of the reasons I like to do this is, Four thousand people is a lot better than four people that are your lab. Mates. Exactly. No. Yeah. That's that's a huge number. What do you mean? I'm like four thousand people. If it's even anywhere close to that, that's more than, as you said, the people that actually uh, that get on and actually read some of the right. science we put out. And besides, sometimes they will read the fitness magazines, and a lot of our stuff gets in there. But sometimes we get misquoted a little bit. So, so those are not always as adequate as uh, accurate, accurate as we would like. But. Um, okay. Certainly, yes. Well, We'd love to do another show. Uh, awesome. Well, again, I appreciate you, you being on very much. Uh, it gets some info out to people. Um, and, again, I, I want to emphasize to everybody as, as we sort of uh, leave Nick and this episode that uh, we're talking about some very prestigious labs. Uh, don't be fooled by Nick's modesty. The people that we're talking about here, uh, his advisors, Nick himself, they're generating the data that's going to change tomorrow's textbooks in a lot of ways, and certainly the kinds of things, as you pointed out, that are in muscle magazines and whatnot. These are the labs where that's coming from. So although some of this data sounds controversial, get your head around it, people, because, you know, it, it could impact the way that, you know, training programs are, are designed in the future or, you know, uh, even dietary interventions, which is another Another story altogether. A whole so. other topic, but yeah, we we hope to rewrite some of the textbooks. You're absolutely correct. Very cool. Okay, uh, Rob, are you uh, anything left out of you, buddy? No, I'm uh, I'm good. But uh, just again, thank you very much, Nick. Um, thank you guys. Really appreciate it. It was fun.
the Iron Radio Podcast, and all of the audio on ironradio.org. The assistance study diet or exercise program is important to check with your physician. Also, should they help with recommended dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists. 